Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. Life is about making decisions. Life is about making decisions. Some are simple and obvious. Some can be more challenging. But no matter what, every day we cannot avoid making decisions, both small and big. Choices that have consequences. And it's not just about the decisions we anticipate having to make, is it? Every day comes with its own set of unexpected obstacles, surprising turns of events, and unforeseen problems, most of which come with a sense of immediacy and urgency. The only way sometimes we can avoid becoming overwhelmed or worse, paralyzed by all the choices before us, all the competing decisions we face, is by prioritizing them. Prioritizing them and acting accordingly. There's a common adage that summarizes how to live this way. It's put first things first. How many of you have heard that expression before? Put first things first. Putting first things first means discerning and focusing on the important, not just the urgent. Putting first things first means organizing our lives, our time, our energy around what is most important rather than the things that are unimportant. Put first things first. First, it sounds fairly easy and intuitive, but in practice, it's one of those phrases that's easier said than done. Am I right? I mean, in a a busy world, the tyranny of the urgent often overrides the prioritization of what is important. For many of us, the things that matter most too often end up being at the mercy of the things that matter least. First things first. Setting the right priorities, though, setting the right priorities is not just about us. Our feeling more effective or efficient on a daily basis. As it turns out, first things are very important to God. In fact, as we return to the Gospel of Luke today, and as Jesus engages in different but related conversations with three people who appear eager to follow him, Jesus is going to underscore the very idea of putting first things first. And together, we're going to discover putting first things first isn't just a principle for managing how we spend our days. Putting first things first is the principle for following Christ with our whole lives. With your eyes on the screen or maybe on the Bible in front, in front of you, let's hear from the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. Starting in verse 57, it reads, As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Jesus said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as Jesus continues forward, 
and this chapter of Luke's gospel comes to an end, we're introduced to three unnamed people who all have one thing in common. Perhaps you notice the key word in this passage is the word follow. It occurs in verse 57, verse 59, verse 61, successively follow, follow, follow. What these three unnamed people have in common is the opportunity to follow Jesus. The first person walks right up to Jesus as Jesus is making his way down the road and proclaims, I will follow you wherever you go. Now here is someone who pulls no punches, right? Seemingly having been in the background, maybe once part of the crowd, having heard Jesus teach and appreciating his message, learning more and more and being impressed by the character of Jesus, this man is ready to make a decision for Christ. In his eagerness, he cuts right to the chase, going right past any talk of repentance and without any conversation or consideration of the cost, the consequence of his decision, this man asserts he will go the distance with Jesus. And at first, Jesus' reply to this man is startling, perhaps even cryptic, as Jesus replies, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What kind of response is that? What does that even mean? Jesus, much like this man, gets to the point, albeit directly. Here is someone who says he wants to follow Jesus, that wherever Jesus goes, he will go. Jesus then, in response, in a roundabout way, tells him exactly what that means. What is involved in following him? Jesus shares he doesn't know where he's going to sleep tonight. But what Jesus is revealing is something more important, something more than a momentary inconvenience of not having a place to stay for the evening. No, Jesus is expressing something deeper about what following him entails. Jesus, again, Luke earlier in the chapter tells us this, Jesus, we might remember, is now on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus is purposefully willingly heading towards the place where he will be betrayed, arrested, and crucified. All in the name of love, forgiveness, and hope. All for the sake of saving and remaking the world and reclaiming and transforming every human life. But nonetheless, Jesus is headed down a path not filled with comfort and prosperity. He is headed down a road marked by suffering and condemnation. The trajectory before Jesus is not one of gaining the approval of the masses. It is not for the sweet smell of success. No, Jesus is moving headlong into a mounting wave of rejection and ridicule that will crest with the cursed stench of his death on the cross. Therefore, before the presumed idealism of this would-be follower, Jesus is cautioning this man are you sure you want to go my way? To this man, who likely has a comfortable home, a steady and secure standard of living, Jesus is asking, are you willing to prioritize me, my way of life, over all that? Are you willing to risk possibly losing all that to follow in my footsteps? Beloved, these aren't just questions for one person. These are the questions for all who, like this man, claim to be eager to follow Christ. If Jesus is the one we claim him to be, 
our light and our life, our beginning and our end, our Lord and our Savior, then Jesus is asking us. Jesus is calling us to put first things first, to make following him the priority of our lives. But the thing is, do we recognize? Do we understand who we are following? We are following the God in Christ who became poor so that we might become rich. We are following the God in Christ who lay aside the glory of the home of heaven to tabernacle, to make his home with us in our brokenness and insecurity. We are following the God in Christ who was rejected far more than he was praised, who was betrayed and abandoned by those who were called to be his friends. We are following the God in Christ who became a curse so that we might experience blessing, who embraced a wrongful death so that we could taste and see everlasting life. Are we ready to sacrifice our sense of comfort in order to follow Jesus? Are we willing to lose that which makes us feel secure in order to follow where Christ goes? Beloved, if the way Jesus saves us, if the way Jesus saves us is not through playing it safe and secure, but rather it is through sacrifice and service, giving his heart to be broken, offering his life and facing death for the sake of others, if the way Jesus saves us is not playing it safe and secure, but is in fact through sacrifice and service, how can we possibly envision that following him means anything less for us? Yet like this man, we profess we will follow Jesus, going wherever he goes. But Jesus calls us to reckon, to reckon with how we are living, how we are willing to live for Christ, over and against what we say as Christians. And the plain and hard truth, the plain and hard truth is this. If our priority is elevating our comfort and convenience above all else, then despite what we say, we aren't willing to put Jesus first in our lives. Because putting Jesus first means actually going where he goes, regardless of the inconvenience or the sacrifice. Putting Jesus first means entering into the grief and pain of those around us rather than ignoring it or avoiding it. It means being first willing to bear their suffering with them and then, as prompted by the Spirit, doing whatever we are called to do to ease their pain. Putting Jesus first means being willing to sacrifice by having less, not more. And many of us are addicted to having more. But putting Jesus first means being willing to sacrifice by having less in order that others can have more. Those who are without, who are struggling to get basic necessities like food, water, clothing, a roof over their heads, health care, and so on. Putting Jesus first means serving, caring for, and helping others, even when such service isn't returned in kind, even when it's not 
received with appreciation, even a thank you. Putting Jesus first means forgiving those who have wronged us, those who have hurt us, those who maybe have even mortally wounded us, rather than retaliate, rather than get our pound of flesh, rather than get them back. Putting Jesus first means forgiving those who have wronged us by recognizing that Christ forgave. Christ forgives us even as we openly reject and rebel against him, even as we know not what we do. The next person Jesus encounters along the way is someone with whom Jesus initiates the conversation. Jesus initiates an invitation to this second person to follow him. Come follow me, Jesus says. And this second man is immediately receptive to Jesus' offer. He too desires to follow Christ. However, he has one caveat. As he replies, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Now, by all accounts, this seems like a reasonable request. And once again, Jesus' response appears cryptic. And this time even seemingly a bit harsh. As Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. But you, you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. We might think to ourselves, what can possibly be wrong with wanting to prepare a funeral for one's father? I mean, since one of God's top ten, the Ten Commandments, one of God's top ten for life, going all the way back to Moses, since one of God's top ten explicitly is about honoring one's parents, there must be something going on here that meets more going on here that meets the eye. There's got to be something else happening here. Clearly, Jesus is addressing something deeper in his response than this idea of literally skipping one's parents' funeral in order to follow him. So then what gives? As we hear this second man's reply, we assume that his father has already died. But let's think about this. If this man's father had already died, this man would not be here, would he? This man would be at home mourning with the rest of his family. The Jewish custom of the time would have required this, especially for a son. So then what then is more likely is this man's father was very old and therefore closer to dying than continuing to live. It could be only days. It might be months or perhaps even years. Either way, this man is declining Jesus' invitation to follow him until after this present phase of his life, caring for his father, has ended. Furthermore, when Jesus answers, let the dead bury their own dead, let the dead bury their own dead, he cannot be referring to someone who is physically deceased burying someone who has died. No, Jesus isn't giving credence to a belief in the existence of zombies, of the undead rising from their graves. No, when Jesus speaks of the dead digging a grave for someone who is deceased, he is talking about those who are spiritually dead. The spiritually dead are those who, even though they are physically breathing and have a pulse, the spiritually dead are those who are living according to the wrong priorities. The spiritually dead are those who are prioritizing the things that don't last, that in the scope of eternity amount to nothing. Things that, as Jesus describes elsewhere, rot, that moths destroy, that others can break in and steal. 
So understand, Jesus then is not being insensitive about this man's father, his father's eventual passing, or the idea of having a funeral for his father when he dies. No, the potentially spiritually dead person Jesus is addressing is this man. Why is Jesus cautioning this man as if he were spiritually dead? Because this man is making excuses. He is delaying responding to Jesus' invitation to follow him. This man is putting other things first in his life before Christ. This man is in essence telling Jesus, yes, I believe in you, Lord. I believe in you and I want to follow you. I want to follow you, but I can't make that commitment to you right now. I need to wait. I need to wait until after my dad dies and then I'll make you my priority. And what Jesus is warning this man in response is, you can't afford to wait to put me first in your life. You're concerned about when your father is going to die physically and taking care of the eventual funeral arrangements, but you're missing the point. If you put anything before me, anything before your need to be saved, your need to be transformed by following me, then you're already dead. Dead in a manner that's worse, that has far more far-reaching consequences than being physically expired. Beloved, Jesus here again is not teaching us to arbitrarily cut off our family ties. Jesus is not setting down a standard for all time, teaching us to neglect our sacred duty to those who have died. Jesus, again, is clarifying what putting him first means. It means not waiting, not delaying in following him. And this is so crucial of a directive for would-be disciples, Jesus emphasizes it not once but twice as a third person approaches Jesus. And much like the others, pledges to follow him. But this guy, the third man, like the second one, also has a proviso. Just, just, just one small condition before putting one foot in front of the other and heading towards Christ. First, Lord, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. On the surface, this again appears to be a reasonable request. However, once again, Jesus leaves no room for making excuses as he responds, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. We miss the point here if we think Jesus is merely rebuking someone about going back to see their family before they depart. It's not that following Jesus leaves no room for family. It's not that following Jesus leaves no space for goodbyes. To see what Jesus means, to see what Jesus sees, notice the common language between these two men, the second and the third. Notice, they say, Lord, first let me do this. First let me do this. The issue is allowing other concerns or priorities to lead us to hesitate, to delay in following Christ. Again, in both cases, there's not anything wrong with what these two men want to do. The issue is they want to do them before, first, more than following Christ. And we all have our reasons, don't we? We all have our excuses. We all have our justifications for not putting Christ first in our lives right now. 
I don't know how to read body language, but this is kind of one of those sermons where I see a lot of people like this. I don't know, I don't know if I should read that the way I think I should, but we all have our reasons, we all have our excuses, we all have our justifications for not putting Christ first in our lives right now. Right now. We're too busy. We're too busy studying and seeking to graduate and get that degree. Following Jesus right now, we're too busy. We're too busy looking for a job. Follow Jesus right now, right now, we're too busy at work. Trying to keep up, finish that project, aim for that promotion. Follow Jesus right now, right now, we're too busy looking for that special someone with whom we can spend the rest of our lives. Follow Jesus right now, oh, right now, we're too busy preparing to get married and to begin our lives together. Follow Jesus right now, right now, we're too busy hoping to start a family. Follow Jesus right now, right now, we're too busy raising our kids. Do you know how exhausting that is? Do you know how time-consuming that is? We're too busy right now. Follow Jesus? Well, right now, we're too busy getting ready for our retirement. Do you know what a big transition that is? Do you know how hard it is to go from working all the time to retiring? Follow Jesus right now? Right now, we're too busy caring for a loved one. Follow Jesus right now? But right now, we're too busy adjusting to getting older and all the health concerns we didn't expect. Follow Jesus right now? Right now, we're too busy receiving medical treatments for a diagnosis we didn't expect. Do you understand what I'm going through right now? Right now, follow Jesus. Right now, we're too busy arranging our estate, making sure our affairs are in order. And then one day, we're not too busy because our heart has stopped and we're no longer breathing. Procrastination can be one of the greatest obstacles in following Jesus. We hear Christ's call. We believe in Jesus, amen. We sit in the pew, we sing, we pray, we commune at the table in Christ's name, but functionally, practically, Jesus is someone we visit. Jesus is someone to whom we give a few hours on a Sunday, every week, maybe a couple times a month, maybe a couple of months a year, maybe at the start and end of each day. But beyond that narrow space, whatever that narrow space is for us, Jesus isn't our priority. And therefore, following Jesus isn't setting our priorities. Beloved, Jesus isn't someone we are looking for let alone recognizing as we go, go about our business instead of his. Jesus isn't someone we're looking for, let alone recognizing as we live our lives instead of his life, the full and abundant life he offers us. We're all busy. I don't know a person here would go, I'm not busy. We're all busy. We all have what we perceive as more pressing obligations. We all have our reasons. We all have our excuses. We all have our justifications. Circumstances we insist have to come before putting Christ first in our lives right now. It doesn't take much. It doesn't take much for the delay of an hour to become something we'll get to tomorrow or later in the week. And how easily... Our best intentions for tomorrow, right, soon carry over into next year. 
And before we know it, how quickly a lifetime has passed. And instead of thriving and maturing in Christ, we find ourselves on death's door begging him to remember our name. The thing is, what we fail to realize is until we put Jesus first, until we put Jesus first, until we make abiding in Christ our ultimate priority, we are already functionally dead even though we appear to be alive. We are spiritually deceased before we ever physically expire. To put this another way, discipleship, following Jesus, discipleship is not an event. It's a process. What we celebrated with Magnus today is not an event. It's the beginning of a journey. It's a process. All of us have been baptized, but some of us are not as young as Magnus anymore, and yet we've never gotten past the baptismal fount because we think it's just about the event. But discipleship, following Jesus, isn't about the event. It's about the process. Following Jesus isn't one thing we ought to do among other important things in our lives. No, following Jesus is to be the priority, the primary orientation. Here it is, the primary orientation through which we engage and accomplish all the other important things in our lives. And to better understand this, let's look one more time at the cautionary word Jesus offers to the third would-be follower when he says, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. It's common sense, really. To put it in more modern terms, what will happen if we are constantly, extendedly looking behind ourselves for a prolonged moment while we're driving? We're not going to drive straight, are we? We're going to swerve into the other lane. We're likely going to get into an accident. But we can tease this idea out even further if we actually reflect on the image Jesus crafts from the agricultural life of his day. Again, in your mind, picture it. What will happen if a farmer looks behind himself while he is plowing a field? Instead of plowing a straight line, he will end with a crooked one. Now, those of you maybe who haven't engaged in farming, I myself have never engaged in farming, what's so wrong with that? Well, here's what I learned about farming that I'm now sharing with you. When plowing a field, if you get the first furrow straight, the whole field will end up straight and square. But if you get the first furrow crooked, then every pass you make after that is liable to be off, crooked. And this will result in more time and work at the end of the job trying to square what was crooked because a crooked field minimizes and perhaps even jeopardizes the yield of one's crop. To plow a field in a straight line, you have to stay focused on a point across the field, something like, say, a tree, something that is ahead of you, something that you follow. So if our lives are like an unplowed field, we can only walk in a straight line, planting and reaping maximum and viable fruitfulness if our focal point is Jesus. Unless following Jesus is what informs the rest of the decisions and choices we make, we will minimize 
and perhaps even forsake the potential we have been graciously given thanks to the cross, the resurrection, and Pentecost. Unless following Christ is what comes first, where we begin and end, where we continually remain focused, the field of our lives is going to be crooked, weaving all over the place and ultimately resulting in nothing more than a wasted opportunity rather than the harvest for the kingdom we have been called to bring for the glory of God. In fact, Jesus even goes so far to say, if we are looking back, we are not fit for the kingdom of God. Now, truth be told, the English translation of this phrase, fit for the kingdom of God, is not as precise as it should be. I really don't like it, and I'll tell you why. Because when it's, when you, it's translated like that, I don't know, to me it sounds like, it seems, leaves us wondering if the gospel is some kind of bait and switch. You know, that while we're saved, while our entry into the kingdom of God is by grace alone and nothing we do, do we only remain in the kingdom of God? Do we only remain under the auspices of Christ's salvation if we earn our keep? If we're fit? If we do our fair share? No. Make no mistake. It's grace all the way. The whole way. It's grace the whole way. We aren't invited by grace, but only get to remain only if we prove our fitness for the kingdom of God through good works. No, that's not the gospel. It's all grace the whole way. A better translation of what Jesus says here is this. Those who are looking back are not useful for the kingdom of God. It's not, that we can't, it's not that we can lose the grace of God. Hear that. It's not that we can lose the grace of God. It's ours for the taking and the giving in Jesus Christ. Grace is ours for the taking in Jesus Christ. It's not that we can lose the grace of God. The point is, we can't lose what we don't have. We can't lose what we don't have. While we are saved by the grace of Jesus, by nothing we do, earn, or merit, or achieve on our own, if we aren't living out of that grace, we won't experience the catalytic, healing, and transformative presence of the Word and Spirit of Christ in our lives. If regularly abiding in and learning from Jesus, joyously reflecting his character, seeking to share his presence and power at work in us by serving others, if worshiping and following Jesus isn't our priority above all else, then it's not that we get kicked out of the kingdom of God. The truth is, we're not living under the reign of God. We're too busy building and living in our own kingdoms, kingdoms that won't go the distance. Kingdoms that won't last. Kingdoms destined to fall as easily as they once rose. Interesting observation about this story. Don't know if you noticed it. Interesting observation. We don't know what happened next for these three people. We don't know what happened next. Whether they walked away sad, you know, like the rich young ruler who Jesus once encountered. Or whether they responded by putting first things first, by putting Jesus first in their lives and following him. Luke doesn't focus on their response because that's not the point. The point is, how do we respond? Desires dictate our priorities. Priorities shape our choices. And choices determine our actions. We can say we believe in Jesus we can tell others we worship Christ. We can say whatever we want about what the most important things in our lives are, 
but we all demonstrate what the most important things actually are by what we prioritize, by who we prioritize. So let's honestly look at our priorities today. Let us recognize and confess all our but firsts, all our but firsts that come before making Christ number one in our lives, before following Jesus in everything we say and do. Elsewhere in Scripture, Jesus makes a promise to us. Do you remember? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Seek first following Jesus, and everything else you need will come. Everything else you need will be provided for. See, when Jesus invites us to follow him, as Jesus extends to us the call to live in the kingdom of God, it's for our benefit and blessing, not his. Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, and ongoing presence through the Spirit, isn't offering us something he needs, something that will make him a more secure God, something that will make him a more complete and fulfilled deity. No, what God in Christ offers us is what we need. It's for our benefit so that we can experience a full, abundant, and everlasting life so we can participate in and be blessed by the redemption and restoration of all creation. What Jesus extends to us in calling us to follow him is more than a ticket to the afterlife. It's more than having someone to call in case of emergencies. What Jesus extends to us in calling us to follow him is the renewal of our minds, the cleansing of our hearts. It is the opening of our eyes, of all our senses, so that we can taste and see and share the goodness of God. It is the wisdom and discernment we require so we can recognize what is just and true, what makes for peace, what brings and fosters hope. It is the power to not only ourselves be forgiven and healed, but it is our empowerment to become agents of reconciliation and resurrection to others. What Jesus extends to us in calling us to follow him is a relationship that can reshape our lives, our lives as individuals, and our life together. And it reshapes it for the better, for the best. To live that life, to experience that relationship, to exist in the kingdom of God, we must put first things first. Following Jesus has to be the first priority through which everything else and measured is measured and entered into. Because this is how everything else gets added unto us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.